Uh, I've been blessed uh, this last week with a head cold. <clears throat> so I'm going to try really hard not to cough in your ear uh, with this microphone. I have a cup of water here. I have a pocket full of cough drops just to be on the safe side. Uh, so you might just have to bear with me. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Because, you know, if I put the cough drop in the mouth and it's like clacking around, uh, it might be a little bit distracting. We're going to try not to do that. <clears throat> that guy. <laughs> that is my son. His name's Max. Uh, Max is four years old. He's sitting in the back of the, of the van right there. He found uh, a Ziploc bag. Uh, it looks worse than it actually is. It's a Ziploc bag that had chocolate chips in it that melted. Uh, and he is uh, attempting to try to get as much of the chocolate out of that bag as he possibly can without sharing with his sister. So his sister is seven years old. And if you were to ask Max, does your sister deserve any of your chocolate, he's going to tell you no, right? In his four-year-old mind, he is very uh, me-focused. Uh, and he doesn't really want to share. Do you want to share with your sister? No. Uh, and that is something that we kind of have to guide him. It's a kind of a condition of the four-year-old heart. Uh, we went to La Center. We go, so we go to La Center all the time. That's where Papa is, right? So uh, Papa lives out in La Center. And every time we go to La Center, we stop at that bakery that's there. And it's awesome, right? So, and yeah, we always uh, end up grabbing donuts there. And so the kids pick out their own donuts. The last time, this summer, when we were there, uh, they pick out their donuts and they were identical, Chocolate donut with sprinkles on top. So we get out into the car. Nina, both Max and Nina, they had taken a bite. No longer, maybe 10 seconds had gone by in the vehicle, and I hit a bump, and Nina's donut popped out of her hand and flopped face down on the floor. And her face, it was so sad, right? She looked down, and her face was like this, and Max... He's got his donut in hand, right? And he's chowing down on it. He looks over at Nina, uh, and Nina is just focused completely on the donut. Uh, and so I'm looking, and I just tell her, Nina, we just wait. We're almost at Papa's house. Just, just take it easy. I know that's sad. Maybe we can wash it off or something. Uh, so, and she, so she's looking at the donut, and Max keeps looking over at her. And I, I'm not saying nothing. I'm just glancing in the rearview mirror, right? And all of a sudden, Max takes his donut and he breaks it in half. And he gives it to Nina. And I was like, Papa, that is the sweetest thing. I'm so pleased with your decision. That's amazing. And Nina was like, Max, thank you so much. And we get to Papa's house and Nina gets out of the seat and she picks up the donut and she's inspecting it. Uh, and she's like, and she says, Dad, there's no hairs on it. So I said, okay, go for it. Uh, and so then she took half of her donut and then she shared it with Max. It was honestly, it was just a magical moment and it really stuck with me. I, and I kept thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know what? That's how God treats me because I drop my chocolate donut all the time. I do. And, what, and God sees me and I'm like this. And God takes what he has and he takes it and gives it to me. He stoops down to offer it to me, to build me up, to love me. Nothing from what I did, 
I didn't work at doing that for God to do that for me. There's nothing in me uh, that I tried to somehow perfect in me before God shares his donut with me. He shares his donut with me, and that is called grace. Amazing grace. We sang about it today. It is sweet, that sound of grace. It is sweet for us to think about it. It is sweet for us to receive it from God. It is sweet for us to be pondering about the, the massive expanse of grace. It has been sweet for me this week to study it. It is sweet for me right now to be able to preach about grace to you. So we're extending the One Another series uh, by two, two bonus ones, and this is the first bonus one. is about being gracious to one another. Before we go on, let's just pray uh, and ask God's blessing this morning. Father, we thank you so much for being here. We thank you that you do take care of us in every way. You take care of us in ways that we don't even recognize. You sustain us by your grace. You save us by your grace. Everything that you do for us, we don't deserve. There's nothing that we do for us to be able to deserve how you treat us, and we are truly grateful for that. You have changed everything for us. It is why we are here. It is why we have your word. It is the reason that we have your spirit, and we ask your spirit to move in our hearts and our minds this morning and use your word to bring us to what grace is, to be able to reflect on it and to move us to be gracious to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to be spending a little bit of time in the book of Ephesians. Paul has a lot to say about grace. The first few chapters of Ephesians, he talks about kind of like what grace is, how grace changes us. And then in the last few chapters, uh, he begins to talk about the practical things about grace. First, we're going to be doing some broad strokes about what grace is and how it changes us. And then we're going to take a look at two verses in particular, two very particular verses in chapter 4 of Ephesians uh, to see what Paul says about how to extend that grace that God gives to us to one another. So first of all, we need to know what grace is because we use that word a lot, don't we? Or varieties of that word a lot in our culture. We talk about a dancer moving gracefully. We talk about uh, saying grace before a meal. Uh, For paying our bills without getting a late fee, sometimes we have a grace period. Uh, We use that word grace a lot. We ask for grace from someone. If we're slow at something, they have to be patient with us. We say that we believe in God's grace. We preach about grace. We talk and we read about God's grace, but do we really know it? Do we think about what it means when we read it or when we hear it? And I know many times for me that I don't. When I read it and I hear about God's grace, that word is just, it's almost like just a word. I think it sounds nice, but I don't really think about the significance of what it means in my life The grace that we're talking about today is grace found in the Bible, and it means unmerited favor. God's grace to us is his goodness poured out upon us, his children, minute by minute, second by second, to sustain us, to save us. In the Bible, Jesus told a story. You're probably familiar with it. There's a father. He's got two sons. The younger son comes to the father, and he says, uh, I would like all my inheritance early. So I would like you to split up the inheritance between me and my brother, and I'd like to take it now. 
And so that's what the father does. And a couple days later, the son takes all of those things and he says, I'm out. And I'm never coming back. See ya. And he leaves and he takes all those possessions. He takes all the inheritance that his father gives him and he goes out and he squanders it. He spends it all on wild living, on foolish things. And all of his money is gone. All of his friends leave him. He has a really gross, disgusting job, and he has nothing. He is alone. And he thinks to himself, you know, even the servants at my father's house have it better than this. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to plead with him. If that's our son, what does that son deserve? Think about it. He has abandoned honor for you. You've treated him fairly and with love, and he has responded by saying, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. And I want my inheritance early as if you were already dead. Then he goes out and he squanders all of that that you gave him. He squanders it all. He wastes it on stupid things, on sinful things. He runs out of money, and now he's coming back. For what reason? Maybe he wants more money from us. And so what does that son deserve? Does he deserve punishment? Does he deserve the silent treatment maybe for us to communicate how disappointed we are in him? For him to be taught a lesson for us to rub his nose in his mistakes and his failings? But what does the father do in the story? See, the thing about that story that Jesus says about the prodigal son, one of the reasons that Jesus tells that story is to showcase the amazing grace of the father, which is God our father. And so, in his grace, the father runs to the son. He sees him in a distance and he runs to him and he holds him and he kisses him and he shares with him everything that he has, the best of what he has. He puts the best robe on him. He puts feet, uh, shoes on his feet. He puts a ring on his finger. He treats him like a precious son and then he throws a party. There's a celebration for when the son comes home and there's music and there's dancing. Is that what the son deserved? See, to know God's grace, we need to first embrace the fact that his love and his blessings are not deserved. All the goodness that he pours out on us, we don't deserve it. When the son returned, did he do anything to deserve that kind of treatment from the father? Did he uh, word his apology, apology just right? Was his heart in the right place? Did he do all the things necessary and jump through all the hoops in order to get his father to treat him that way? It's interesting, the only thing that the son does, we find it in Luke 15, 21. All he says is when they're hugging one another, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, I don't deserve any of your blessings. Just take me back as one of your servants. I don't deserve it. And then grace upon grace is poured out on the son. And then during the festivities, the older brother is working out in the field. And as he's walking close to home, he hears sound. He hears singing. He hears music. He hears a party. And he asks one of the servants, hey, what's going on? And the servant says, great news. Your younger brother has returned. And your father has killed the fattened calf. And he's made a very special meal. And he's thrown a party. And the older brother is offended. 
he is mad, and the father comes out, and he says, please, son, will you come in? Enjoy the party. Rejoice over the fact that your brother has returned, and he says, no. I have served you. I have been by your side. I've worked hard for you. I didn't ask for my inheritance early like that son of yours in there, but where, so where's my party? Where's my special treatment? I want to party with my friends too. I deserve more. See, to know God's grace, to receive it, to be changed by it, to be able to rejoice over God's grace and to be, to be singing about how amazing that his grace is, we need to first know that we don't deserve God's blessings. It is not owed to us, and we are not entitled to it. And to know this does not come naturally for us, does it? So if you're struggling to understand his grace, struggling to receive the unconditional gifts from him like salvation, struggling to see the grace that is upon grace Uh, that is upon grace, which the cross represents. If you're struggling to see that, we ask that he reveal to us his boundless grace. We ask him, Lord, please show us the depth of your grace. Show us the extent of your blessings poured out upon me, a servant who doesn't deserve it. And this is a great place to start when it comes to understanding and knowing what God's grace is. And as we know it, his grace becomes more and more amazing. It's amazing, first of all, that we get grace from God. Another thing that is amazing is that we just don't get it. We don't just receive it and say thank you very much and then put it off to the side. It does something in us. It changes us. It has power to change us. His grace changes us. His grace, if you think about it, has changed the world in every single way. The reason that I am standing here before you today in this position is because of God's grace. The reason that I have breath to say these words is because of God's unmerited favor to me. My mind, my strength, everything that I have is because of him. How I have been designed and formed in my mother's womb, did I have anything to do with that? No. We see the stars at night We hear the wind through the trees. We taste the sweetness of a strawberry or a peach. Did we have anything to do with that? No. It is all because of God's grace. Paul builds a case in chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians about that with the fact that we have received God's grace. We continue to receive God's grace, and we are changed by that grace. And if you're following along in that notes, His grace changes us both individually and collectively as a church. And what we find in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, something very familiar. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. It is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace only that we are forgiven. Jesus came. He lived. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And he saves. He continues to save today, 2,000 years after it happened. He continues to save. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. We will be cleansed from the sin that we have. We are purified so much so that the spirit of the living God dwells in us. And we are called a brand new 
creation. Grace changes us, doesn't it? In verse 13 of chapter two, Paul says that we were far away from God, but because of the blood of Jesus, we are now brand, we are like pulled close. It's just like the prodigal son. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of the blood of Jesus, God the Father sees us in the distance. We are far away, a distance that there's no way that we could run, no way. There's a chasm too far for us to bridge, and God the Father, through Jesus Christ, then runs to us and embraces us. He kisses us and he treats us like sons and like daughters of God. His grace brings us together as a church in unity. It grows the church. It supports the church. It is by grace we have been saved. It is by grace that we are sanctified, that we become more and more like Jesus. This idea that we are changed by God treats us the way he treats us, how he how he. Uh, his behavior toward us because of his attributes and who he is. This is very important for us to understand if we're gonna understand and know what it's like to treat each other with graciousness, okay? It's very important that we know that the way he treats us changes us because Jesus tells a parable of an unmerciful servant, another parable, and he says there's a king and he's trying to settle all the debts. And so he's calling in all the people that owe him money. He calls in a servant who owes him a large sum of money. In fact, it's such a large, large sum, Jesus says it's 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, we don't really know what that is uh, in today's culture monetarily. But when we compare it to what a servant was to make back then, it's an equivalent to somewhere around 100,000 to 200,000 years of service and working. Jesus says a number that is so astronomically big, there is no way that the servant could pay it. And he brings the servant in, and he says, it's time to pay up. And the servant's like, please, be patient with me. Uh, I'll try. And the king says, well, I'm, I'm going to sell you, I'm going to sell your family, I'm going to sell all your possessions, so it helps recoup uh, the, the debt that you owe me. And this is the servant falls on his knees, and he begs the king, please, be patient with me. Be patient with me, and I, I will try to repay it. And it says the king had pity on the servant, and he forgives him the entire thing, all of it. And then the servant walks out, and he finds a fellow servant, and that fellow servant owes him about 100 bucks. And it says that he chokes that servant. He chokes him. And he says, give me the money that you owe me. Give me my hundred bucks. And he says, please. Same thing as the servant did to the king. He says to his fellow servant, please, be patient with me. and I'll pay it back. And it says, the servant refused. He refused. And he had his fellow servant thrown into prison. And we say, well, that doesn't sound right, does it? That doesn't make any sense. The servant should have treated his fellow servant with kindness. And he should have forgiven just as the king did. Exactly. That is exactly right. There is something for us to remember. That the standard for our behavior with each other is based only on the way the king has treated us. That's it. And of course, when I'm talking about the king, I'm talking about the king of kings, our Lord Jesus. 
So as believers, our behavior toward one another is no longer based on how other people treat us. It's based on how the, how the king, how our Lord has treated us. It's no longer based on our feelings of what we think other people deserve and how we would like to treat them. No. The standard is on how he has treated us. So what does that look like practically? We are to then extend God's grace to others. How he has treated us, we are to treat one another. Paul has built, like we talked about, an argument in Ephesians chapters one through three that we have received grace, that we continue to receive grace. And that grace, it changes us. So in in chapters four through six, he now begins to show what does that look like relationally? What does that look like at home? What does that look like in the church with one another's? And there's going to be two one another's that we're going to focus on. It's at the very beginning of chapter four and at the very end. The first one is at the very beginning, chapter four, verses one and two. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's that bearing with one another in love that we're going to focus on. It's also called forbearance. It's translated as tolerance sometimes. The idea is that we cut each other some slack. That's the idea. The idea is that we don't tally up, that we don't hold on to the things that frustrate us about each other, the things that we are offended by from each other, and you say, well, offended, offense? Like, we live in the 21st century, right? I mean, we're enlightened. (laughs) We preach tolerance, don't we? It's very important to our culture. We're very politically correct, but if you look around, if you drive on the freeways, for example, if you wait in line at the grocery store, if you drive the roundabout on 14, If you listen to raised voices in your neighborhood, you will find that as a culture, we are actually very easily offended. Robin and I just saw on 205, a guy in the fast lane pass the guy in front of him on the shoulder, get in front, and then slam. When I mean slam, I mean slam on his brakes. It was terrifying. It almost caused this giant pileup. But that kind of attitude and behavior, I think, reflects pretty well what our society is like, that we are very easily offended. There's lots of impatience and hostility and frustration. There's so much emotion. And what we're looking to do is we're looking to point the finger. And we want to point the finger and find out who it is that is to blame. Who it is that should pay for my offense? Whose fault is it that all this emotion in me is stirred up? Because if I'm offended, there is no possible way that it's my fault. I don't have the problem. It's not me, right? And our society, social media, television and radio broadcasting, they say that that is okay and even reinforce that mentality in us. And it's not just bad drivers, is it? There are many ways that we find things offensive that aren't sin. We misinterpret circumstances. Conversations or emails or body language or facial expressions get misinterpreted. We don't have the whole story, and so we make assumptions. We don't have all the information, and so we fill in the blanks. 
Sometimes we have unrealistic expectations about what we deserve and how people should be treating us. Sometimes those unrealistic expectations are about how other people should live, what they should be doing with their life. They should be responsible. They should have honor and manners. You always hold the door, and if you don't, I will be offended. That's kind of my thing. You always hold the door, right? You always hold the door. Now, it's an easy choice to be gracious to someone who is gracious to you. Ah, but there's the problem that we face, right? Not everyone is always gracious to us. But remember, the standard for our behavior with each other is based only on the way the king has treated us, and that standard should be our focus, not what's offensive, not what we think about people, not, not what other people are doing and what we think they should be doing or what we expect people to be treating us. That focus is on that standard on how the king has treated us. God calls us, he moves us to bear with one another just as he's been so gracious and he has been so patient with us. And that word patience is a very key thing in understanding what forbearing is and what bearing with one another is. In Proverbs 19.11 It tells us a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. I love that. Patience is actually one of the words that Paul uses to describe the character qualities that help us to bear with one another, to give each other room, to allow God to work in one another, to be who God has made us to be. Paul says, in all humility... If everything is reduced to how it affects me, if I am the center of the universe, then no wonder I'm offended by everything because pride prioritizes my own comfort, my own agenda, my way of doing things. And if anything was to bother that or change that, then I will take offense at it. But humility, humility sees things a little bit more clearly, sees things more as they should be, more as they actually are to see the bigger picture to have things in correct perspective. Humility can see much more clearly that we are no different than any other offender. In humility, Paul says, we need to bear with one another. He also says in gentleness, that idea of gentleness is that we don't fix things by smashing them. That's the Hulk's way of doing things. That's not Jesus' way of doing things. And that is certainly not the way his followers do things. We are gentle, And we bear with one another in our failings and our weaknesses because we are all weak from time to time. We all have failings from time to time. He says, in all patience. So the idea, I think, is this, is that we are not called to fix everything in everyone. Even if we were called to do that, which we're not, but even if we were, there's no way that we could do it immediately. There's no way that we could do it completely. There's no way that we could do it consistently. But we can be patient with people because we know that we're on a journey with the Lord. I am. You are. And he's leading us, isn't he? He's correcting us. He knows so much better than we do how to fix things, and when to fix things. And he focuses not just on the surface issues like we tend to do, but he gets down deep where the wound really is to fix it inside of our hearts. So he knows what he's doing. He's strong enough to do it, and he's wise enough to correct us and to take crooked lines that are in our lives and in each other's lives and to be able to make those things straight. 
So, as a one another, I can have patience with you knowing that we are all in the very capable hands of God. So we're to bear with one another. We're cut some, some, some slack to one another, give room to each other so that we don't allow our attitudes and our judgments to get in the way of what God is doing. This is about having a different standard like we talked about. Not how I feel they should be treated, not how they have treated me, but Jesus then becomes the standard. Jesus is humble. He treats me with gentleness. He treats me with patience, and that is how we are to treat one another. That is extending God's grace. At the end of chapter four, we find another one another. I said that fast in the first service, another one another. It just sounded uh, kind of funny to me. Uh, It's in Ephesians at the very end of the chapter in verse 32. uh, It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are gracious to one another when we forgive each other. And the word forgiving is a word that is used of God giving his grace to pardon. It literally means to exercise grace. So we're to exercise grace by forgiving one another. And why do we have to forgive? Well, if we didn't sin against one another, that wouldn't be an issue. We would never have to worry about forgiving each other, but we do, and that's the problem. We all experience the ugliness of sin, don't we? We feel the pain, the hurt that it causes. The fact is none of us are perfect. Pastors aren't perfect. Our spouses aren't perfect. We are not perfect people. Our grow groups are not perfect. Our church, as good as our church is, our church is not perfect. And so it is inevitable. It is only a matter of time until there is an offense and a sin against each other. And sin hurts and it destroys, but God asks us, he tells us, he commands us to forgive. Now, just to be clear, to forgive doesn't necessarily mean to trust, okay? To forgive doesn't mean that if a crime was committed that we don't need a judicial system. To forgive doesn't mean that there isn't natural repercussions and consequences for sinful actions, Here's what it does mean. To forgive means that you give up your right to get even. To forgive means that you release the offender from the consequences of their behavior as it affects you. As it affects you. Now imagine someone has sinned against you. That shouldn't be hard, right? They've hurt you. God says, now you've got to trust me on this. I'm working in both of your lives. And what I need you to do is something that has nothing to do with the other person, has nothing to do whether or not that they ask for forgiveness. It has nothing to do whether you think that their apology is heartfelt. It has nothing to do with that. What I want you to do, he says, is I need you to forgive them as I have forgiven you. Now, did God forgive us only after we rehearsed an apology until we got it exactly right and jumped through all the hoops in order to make it so that God could forgive us? Did he wait to forgive us until our hearts were right? Did he forgive us only after we paid the penalty for our sin? He sought 
us out. He came up with the plan. He gave his only son to die on the cross. While we were still sinners, while we were still wallowing in our sin, Christ died for us and took upon himself the punishment for our sin. And they were all of our sins, weren't they? They were all of our sins. It was complete. Even the sins that we don't even know about. Even the sins that we don't even think are a big deal. Even the sins that we struggle with and that we repeat again and again. He says to you, I want you to forgive them as I have forgiven you. To extend the grace that I have given to you to that person you think doesn't deserve it and that stirs feelings in us, doesn't it? We want to hold on to being right. I am right and they are wrong and someone needs to do something to make their wrong right. And God says, trust me. You gotta trust me. Okay, forgive even if they haven't said that they're sorry. It stirs feelings in us and we resist that. And we say, I'm not, I'm not gonna take the initiative. It should be them. They need to come to me. And God says, trust me. You need to forgive them even though it is difficult. But it seems so costly, doesn't it? It seems so hard to do what God is asking. But he comes back again and again and again, and he says, trust me, I have your best interest in mind. He tells you, I know that it's difficult and it seems very costly. But it doesn't compare it does not compare with the cost of unforgiveness. Because when we hold on to unforgiveness, all it does is allow the offense to fester inside of us and it begins to eat away at our character, eat away at our faith, eat away at the unity of the church. It eats away at our purpose and our calling. When we choose to withhold grace, it is like poison inside of us. And Paul says, right before 32, right before he says to forgive one another in verse 31, he says, let all that bitterness go. Let it go. Let go of wrath. Wrath makes us quick to accuse and ready to explode. He says, get rid of your anger. Get rid of your clamor. Clamor is loud yelling and screaming. And slander, slander is this nasty attempt to try to get other people to be against the offender. He says, let it go. Get it away from you. Put it away from you, along with all malice. Malice is wishing evil upon the offender. Put all this away. Stop holding on to offenses, he says. Stop holding on to it. Stop allowing these offenses to poison your relationships, poison your church, to poison you inside, even affecting your health and your well-being. He calls us to forgive, and he calls us to forgive again and again, and again, and again. Now remember, the standard of our behavior for each other is always about how the king treats us. And that standard needs to be our focus, not to be consumed over the hundred bucks that our fellow servant owes us, but to be captivated by how the king has forgiven me and how much and to the extent that he has forgiven. To be gracious to one another means we need to forgive as God has forgiven us. 
Easier said than done, right? How do we get there? Whether it's forgiveness or forbearance or however it is that God has graciously treated us to extend that grace and to treat other people the same way, let me say this first, that when we withhold grace for whatever reason, we choose to withhold grace. Okay, not no sin and no one forces our hand on the matter. And if we want to extend to others the grace that has been given to us, then we need to choose it. But, but, it is a choice that we are empowered with God by. His Spirit moves us. He nourishes the soil of our soul. He plants the seeds. He causes growth. And that fruit is his fruit that is produced in our lives. And if we take a look at some of the key words from, our t- from the verses that we looked at in Ephesians about forbearing with one another and forgiving one another, what are the words that he uses uh, that we do that with, to support those things with? Humility, gentleness, patience, love, kindness. Do these words sound familiar at all? These are all words that describe the the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And look what he tells the Galatians in chapter 5, 16 and 17. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So when we're we're honest and we say it seems so difficult, it seems impossible to forgive someone when I don't think that they deserve it, then that should not surprise us. When God says that we need to bear with one another but we admit that there's this strong pull in us to be impatient, then we should not be surprised by that because the spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other to make you not want to do that. So what do we do? Well, in Galatians 3.3, Paul says this to the church at Galatia, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, having your mind renewed by the Spirit, having that Spirit draw you closer to God to, to, to be a seal of your salvation, to instigate and initiate everything to do with your salvation? Are you so foolish that you think now that you are being perfected by the flesh? Are you trying by human effort Now, to do what is supernatural, to forgive someone who doesn't deserve it is a very supernatural thing. To forbear with everyone in here and be patient with everyone, that is a supernatural thing. Are we trying by human effort to do something that is a result of the work of the Spirit? He says in verse 18 of chapter 5 that the Spirit leads. And then in 16, he says, then we are to keep and step with the Spirit. So he leads. And it may sound hard. It may sound contrary to how we feel about the situation, but he leads and then we take a step. And when we do, we realize he's really good. He leads and we take another step. And with each step, we realize that he is faithful and that he is trustworthy. 
See, to be gracious to one another is a choice that we make, but that choice starts with the Spirit of God, and we rely on his power and the leading of that Spirit every step of the way. So the question then really is how are we led by the Spirit? I'm going to give you two things, uh, and then we'll be done. If you're struggling with forgiveness, if you're struggling with bearing with one another, with patience and with humility, if you're struggling to understand even God's grace, if you're struggling to receive God's grace, then the very first thing I'm gonna say is this, that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, not on us, not on other people, not on their offenses, not on their sin, not on our failures to extend grace, but we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to grow in our knowledge of his goodness and we need to grow in our knowledge of his generosity. We remind ourselves from Scripture how patient he is with us, with us a people who don't deserve it. We remind ourselves in Scripture how he forgives us a people who don't deserve it. We keep our eyes on the king, and we remind ourselves again and again and again how he has treated us and how he is the standard. And if you're not doing it, I can't recommend enough that you get in the word of God. If you don't have time, I encourage you to make time. Wake up a little bit earlier, uh, earlier than normal. Do something at, at lunchtime. Uh, while you're in the car, there's all kinds of methods to be able to listen to the word of God, to be able to remember it so that our knowledge can be growing in him every single day. And number two is something that looks familiar, and that is kneel down. There's a prayer that I have for you in the notes so that you can take that prayer with you as you leave here. If we want to be led by the Spirit, we need to kneel down before him and we need to submit ourselves to him daily. We need to be asking him as often as we think about it for his strength, for his direction, for his desire in us for holiness. The band is going to come back up and we're going to sing uh, one last song. But before we do, I'd like to pray this prayer for you that's in the notes. As you leave here this week, I really encourage you to put this prayer someplace that you see it first thing in the morning before you do anything else in their day to be able to take this and to go to God with this prayer so that he can lead us and that he can empower us to take those steps of faith in order to be gracious to one another. Let's pray. God, thank you that, you're, that you love us with an everlasting love and that because of your grace for us, you have saved us. We confess our sins to you and ask that you forgive us. God, we need you and I ask that you provide us with every good thing so that we can do your will. May you show us how to walk and what is pleasing in your sight. We wanna love you. We wanna serve you with all of our heart, with all of our soul. Help our lives to be strong in love, to be built on love. Jesus, your love is greater than anyone could ever know, but I pray that we will be able to know that love and be filled with everything that you have for us. We want to forgive as you have forgiven us. Spirit, we want your fruit to grow in our lives, so I ask that you give us wisdom and understanding so that we can be filled with the knowledge of your will for our lives so that the decisions we make are worthy of you. God, direct our steps, we pray, and give us your strength to make those steps in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.